Welcome to the In Common Podcast. This is Stefan Pardolo. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Anna Katharina Hornig. Anna is the director of the German Development Institute in Bonn, Germany, one of the leading research institutes and think tanks for global development and international cooperation around the world. She's also a professor of global sustainable development at the University of Bonn. Anna refers to herself as a development and knowledge sociologist with a focus on natural resource governance, sense-making, the social construction of knowledges and realities, as well as the cultures of knowledge production and sharing. She was also an advocate of transformative science to advance inter- and transdisciplinary science cooperation. In this episode, Anna tells us about her career and path into science leadership through Southeast Asian studies, sociology, development, and environmental governance research. We then discuss how she draws on a constructivist perspective and how this can be applied to understand how and why knowledge is produced within the science system and the implications this has on funding structures, outcomes, and development politics. Anna also gives us her take on making interdisciplinary research work in practice and the challenges with pushing forward a transformative science agenda. This is the In Common Podcast. One thing that we ask all the guests on the podcast is, at least the way that Michael usually frames it, is what is your origin story? I don't know too much about how you got into academic work in the beginning uh, before we met in Bremen. I know you were also in Bonn before that, uh, but it would be great to hear a little bit about how you got involved into academic work and how that led to you eventually to, to Bremen and then back to Bonn. All right, uh, let me try that one. Well, I studied Southeast Asian studies originally, and I basically started studying Southeast Asian studies because I had so many ideas of what I was interested in and couldn't quite decide. But I had this godmother who was very much interested in developing country contexts and had uh, created one world fair trade store in, in the small place I grew up at, grew up in. So, um, that inspired me, and because I didn't quite know what to do, I thought I'd, I'd try one semester of Southeast Asian Studies. It sounded very interesting, and at that time, many of the develop, uh, organizations within development cooperation under, underwent a restructuring process around uh, regional foci rather than thematic foci. Mm-hmm. So uh, to me, that was uh, inspiring, and I thought I'd do that for one semester and then sort of start something proper and change to law or something like that. <laughs> and well, after after one semester, I went to Jakarta for two months to do an internship with Siemens and decided that I was not going to change to a different university course and stick with South, Southeast Asian Studies and then studied that at, at the University of Bonn and eventually at the University of Singapore for, yeah, until, until graduating with, with a master's. And then swapped um, in in Singapore. Uh, I basically had already changed to sociology. It was more sociology of Southeast Asia, which mm-hmm. which caught my interest, and and I decided to stick with sociology for the PhD, and then wrote the PhD on the social construction of knowledge societies in in Singapore and Germany, actually in comparison at the University of Berlin and Technical University of Berlin and at in Singapore again, National University of Singapore. And with this moved into the field of sociology of knowledge, 
My supervisor was uh, Hubert Knoblauch, who is who's a sociologist of knowledge and religion. And then after that, took on a, a senior researcher position um, at the Center for Development Research at the University of Bonn, where I ended up spending nine years, actually. And there originally was hired for a project looking at knowledge hub creation and uh, basically investments into research and development into science policy um, or a science policy for facilitating the construction of research hubs and sort of Asian Silicon Valleys, one could say, in, along the Straits of Malacca region, so Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia. But then I think two years after starting that job, um, more and more started working on environmental governance questions as well, so um, water governance, land governance, and especially actually the development of uh, local level innovations in agricultural contexts and then moved regionally more and more towards Central Asia. I worked um, in a project on Uzbekistan for quite a number of years in, in the rural context of cotton and wheat agriculture and from there a few other projects on Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan followed all around basically innovation development processes within agriculture and thus sort of linked to, to agricultural resource governance. And then took on the first professorship actually also at the Center for Development Research uh, at the University of Bonn, but it was a fixed contract professorship. And yeah, after after taking it on, Actually, a few months after only, I got the offer from, from Bremen to join the University of Bremen as well as the Leibniz Center for Tropical Marine Research. And that to me sounded fascinating because it was in a way, it's, it's the, yeah, the marine or coastal friend of the Center for Development Research. You know, the Center for Development Research is very much looking at, at agricultural settings in, in, within or for development research, um, while ZMT has this explicit coastal focus that, that was new, but at the same time, especially in, in the island Southeast Asian context, my work was in a way coastal, but thinking, thinking from basically the inner parts of the island towards the, the coast, which is something different than thinking about the actual coastal water and thinking about the coastline coming from the ocean basically towards the coast. So a lot of new learning basically uh, had to take place there in the first first years definitely but yeah that was that was sort of that was my first permanent professorship and um the chance to to build up a research group around uh, that I well we named it knowledge and development development knowledge sociology at ZMT then I think a year after joining ZMT I also took on the leadership um, of the department social sciences which I enjoyed. I mean, I, I guess I'm mentioning this as well because if I think back, I, I developed sort of an interest in combining this uh, science management questions as well as the actual research and PhD supervision, project management, and in many ways that continues continues driving me until today as well. Mm -hmm. And yeah, then of course, early this year, I, I changed from Bremen to, to Bonn. Sorry, just to mention that one as well. The last piece, yeah, yeah. or the most recent piece, let's say. Yeah, yeah. I'm always fascinated how people rethink their own story, and I, for me, it's changed as I as I move forward. I look back and I, I think about my different experiences and the way I meandered through the career that I've had so far. Do you think that 
your focal areas and trajectory were somewhat purposeful and you had you had a direction or was it more of it couldn't have been predictable at the time oh i think it's always a mix in the end yeah? um i knew i knew and i continue knowing i knew i was fascinated by by trying to get to know other societal settings and trying to understand how um people in very different cultural and geographic contexts make sense of this um human nature interface and that i think is very much a red line through all of my work yeah? my earlier work which was sort of located within the sociology of knowledge always it had less the nature nature focus or environmental focus but there of course questions of sense making stood at the foreplay and how we engage with nature and make make sense of it interpret nature and environment and based on these sense making processes then adjust our actions towards nature and the environment so that laid the conceptual um, foundation in many ways for then some of my more in environmentally focused and environmental governance focused work I hear the term sense making quite often when I when I hear you speaking about your work and also others in in sociology. I think we'll get into a little bit about what development and knowledge sociologists tend to focus on and their type of research. But sense making, what is sense making in your view? Well, I mean it's a it's a it's a term of course found um in in writings by Alfred Schütz for instance and and Husserl Edmund Husserl, no? so within philosophy within the sociology of religion and within the early works of the sociology of knowledge and what it describes is the process of us as human beings basically observing our surrounding and typifying it you know, basically classifying what we see sorting it into particular boxes one could even say so if i observe a, a crowd of people I will try to understand the patterns. I will try to understand what kind of different characters are in the room, the clown versus the serious person, the the um, bossy one versus the yeah the less bossy person. Or no, so we we immediately try to and that's that's a process we we continuously do. We don't do we we don't question it anymore. Yeah? But by doing this, we we sort what we observe and create construct particular types that then guide our our thinking and our interaction with these types no? so if i have sort of basically classified you as the clown i will interact differently with you than if i have classified you as a student who learns something from me or who i should be offering some some learning possibilities to or my husband or a teacher yeah so um, depending on on um, these classifications, we adjust our own actions, and that's because it is such a fundamental process of how we observe what is around us, and based on that on that observation, then create reality or a particular reading of reality, but then through our actions also contribute to the action creation of that reality. Um, it is it is some it's a conceptual approach and um that that you can that you can transfer in many many different fields oh, and to di many different themes as well and mm. um, yeah research topics do you think that 
those ideas, particularly sense making, and you mentioned social constructionist ideas, which I want to get into a little bit as well. Do you think that they've materialized and have been as useful as they potentially could be in environmental governance or in environmental social ecological systems, the many buzzwords that are out there around environmental governance? Do you feel like they've got enough attention or do you feel like they can have a bigger role to play in Well, I think they help us to understand different environmental governance frameworks as all different constructions of how we want to engage um, with the environment. No? So it's, it's it's basically a perspective that, that encourages us to look at the processes that underlay the creation of a particular management tool, for instance, or the processes that then derive from its implementation no? and and contribute to its implementation and by doing by by taking on that um, process perspective it it helps us to understand that any management tool or any yeah governance approach is not a silver bullet no but unfolds its full potential in its implementation and here detail matters detail and context matters no? every t- every single time so your working group in Bremen was was development and knowledge sociology and was also looking at your profile on the DIE page now. And it also says that your specialist is around this area. You've touched a little bit on how that type of thinking around sense making, but I'm still interested. I think it would be useful for folks who are perhaps not as interested or not as uh, familiar rather with that type of work. What types of questions would you ask and what types of methods would you tend to employ? Well, I mean... You know, questions of sense and meaning making, of course, are what we've now just looked at is, is a rather conceptual approach or outlook onto, onto the world and onto research. If we are now, um, transferring ourselves mentally into maybe to Eastern Indonesia and a coastal village that is dealing with, uh, you know, an increase in drought, long, longer drought periods and a lot more extreme weather events than ever before, sudden flash floods, so long droughts, then sudden flash floods, and um, flooding coming, sort of washing washing back into basically um, salt water from the ocean back into the village. Then, of course, we would, uh, we would be on an adaptation research level interested in understanding, well, how does this village cope with, with these uh, environmental change-induced challenges and on, on a short-term basis? How does it do that longer term? How does it adjust its livelihood systems to to the changed situation? And these are questions that you can ask with many different conceptual backgrounds. No? They are um, mm. very sort of straightforward questions in 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 a way. Um, as a knowledge sociologist, you're probably more inclined to try to understand knowledge systems as as sort of the basis, local knowledge systems and their interaction with maybe knowledge systems brought in by international donors or by um, the government or through market, market-based market approaches, trying to understand how yeah, the capacities in the village, and with this I mean also the, the skill sets in the village, um, very much are challenged by these change processes and at the same time also how skill development 
and the de the further development of infrastructures can contribute to adaptation mechanisms. No, so there you would ask questions of well, how how does the local community first of all perceive these changes? How do they document it? What's uh, what's the what's the historical the oral accounts that are given? No, how long back are these change processes? Are they remembered by? Um, and then try to understand what what are the adaptation practices that we can observe, which ones are upscalable, outscalable, where do they come from? No, are they inherently local adaptation practices, basically practices that used to exist in the village already since centuries for simply living with times of shortage, like for instance, you know, after after or at the end of a long drought period, starting to also eat particular um palm trees, etc., from from the forest, or um, are they practices that come in now through through donor channels and other channels um, in order to to sort of improve um, the situation and basically pose innovations, no? external innovations that are then adjusted by by um, the local knowledge system. The the knowledge sociological question then probably would be to try and understand how particular innovations or also techno technological as well as institutional innovations that come in are adapted to the local context. No? So how are they being made sense of in mm. the local context and are being translated into the particular cultural setup, into the particular financial capacities also of, of, of the community or of a household? And, and how does that um, translation process take place in a way that long-term use of these external innovations can be can be guaranteed, yeah, or can be um, fostered. I want to switch a little bit over to, as you mentioned before, as you moved into Bremen and you you kind of straddled this position between science leadership and strategic development and also supervision and developing research projects, etc. And I know we've also discussed between us, but also your interest in in science cooperation and some of the challenges that there are uh, between different epistemological perspectives, social constructionist views, positivistic views, and some of the challenges with trying to explain this different perspective and looking at the world. But I would say we kind of live in a positivistic, science-dominated science system. And I think it's particularly interesting from a knowledge sociologist perspective given that you can, I think, apply the way knowledge is constructed back on the sci onto scientific cooperation structures within, within the academic system. And I, I'm really interested to hear your experience in trying to navigate that space. Mm, yeah, that's a tough one. But, you know, I mean, knowing that the world is relative doesn't mean that we can't shape it, yeah, or that we wouldn't have any leverages and um, ways of of basically making a difference now that sounds like a rather sort of abstract statement but what i mean is of course social constructivism mm, it can be rather abstract and it often leads encourages us to first of all understand yeah the process of constructing reality as well as then deconstructing basically realities by, by understanding how they come into being. And that's not necessarily what someone that that if a ministry um, you know addresses us and asks for advice on a particular shaping of, for instance, 
you know, a program how to deal with Corona, uh, coronavirus situation now is interested in, yeah, in uh, deconstructing the whole system. That's not very uh, constructive yeah, in that mm. moment. But in, in my view, it, it, um, it helps. I mean, a sort of constructivist perspective in, in many ways pushes us to understand or take on a rather differentiated approach and perspective on a given situation. Yeah? For instance, now the situation of the healthcare sector in particular countries of Africa, for instance. Yeah? And then try to, from there, formulate very concrete policy advice that, to me, does not stand in a contradiction with uh, social constructivist approaches. Yeah? So you mentioned that the science system is dominated by by positivist um, perspectives, and I probably used to agree with you there, but I'm no longer so sure. I mean, a purely positivist perspective is something that is even even in the hard natural sciences, so-called hard sciences, yeah, the natural sciences, I would say is no longer that um, common anymore. No? I mean, um, by now, the, the understanding, if I look at IPCC uh, debates or IPBEST debates, understanding that um, science is always or that it's always necessary to understand how societally negotiated any kind of scientific fact is so meaning that a scientific fact is not just a god-given thing that we measure in in reality but by measuring it we already construct it to men in many ways yeah it makes a difference um our our, our scientific methods in trying to map and measure the world um of course contribute substantially to how we see that world and how a scientific fact comes into existence is just as relevant as then trying to understand how is a scientific fact then transferred into, for instance, policy making and um, basically they are societally negotiated in order to, to be um, shaping political programs. No? So if you take the example of of the of the climate of climate politics there what we observed was that the, the IPCC scenarios that were developed with regard to, for instance, sea level change and sea level rise, they were largely, they were developed with, within the science community as, as calculations based on, um, climate models. But when they were then transferred to the poli to the sphere of policy making, they took on suddenly the role of basically future scenarios and also predictions that very immensely then uh, shaped political action. So if you take IP the IPCC scenario RCP 2.6, it basically says um, if we observe a global warming of of on average two degrees, then we we will observe a, a sea level rise around 0 0.26 to 0.55 meters along 70% of, of the coast globally by 2081 to 2100. So that's, that's of course, um, that's a calculation based on climate models. But once that um, RCP 2.6, this idea of the two the two degree limit basically moved into the sphere of poli policy making. It took on its sort of own, own life né? and uh, took on, um, became moved from a calculation to 
a prediction and nearly also an, an aim to a political goal to remain below the two degrees, yeah? mm-hmm. um, which, which of course is then something very different because it, it guided then action towards remaining or trying to um, stay underneath these two degrees rather than potentially even trying to to stick to to no warming at all yeah, or trying to achieve no warming at all which is of course not possible how can we kind of interpret the science cooperation and the science system through a knowledge and knowledge sociology lens and i think one concrete example that you and i work together on is this idea of pathopendencies which can substantially influence how knowledge is produced why it's produced where it's produced and the continuing cycle of reproduction of knowledge which occurs in certain places on certain areas on certain topics and that's the, the difficulty with actually breaking those cycles maybe first of all it's also important to mention that um, if if you think about knowledge systems and how they differ globally we on the one side of course think of scientific knowledge systems no? or sort of the sciences as, as one knowledge system or as, as one type of many knowledge systems, I should say. But then, of course, there are many, many other forms of everyday knowledge systems, no? so religious knowledge systems or um, um, defined through and around ethnicities, for instance, or around gender. No? So there are many different uh, knowledge systems to look at. But if you now just for a moment um, think about the diversity of, of the global science system, then, of course, first of all, it's important to always keep in mind the massive um, differences in their funding structure. And that's relevant because um, what we observe is that, um, for instance, in the, the German science system uh, usually receives sort of around 3.5% of um, the GDP um, annually of the German GDP. We might often be a bit um, below the 3.5% aim, but um, nearly reach it. And um, then we have other science systems, for instance, within the African uh, context where the, the financing looks very, very different. So we have, for instance, the um, if one just briefly looks at the numbers, um, we have a situation where the Tanzanian um, science system receives around 0.51% of the Tanzanian GDP or the, um, the Kenyan around 079 or the Namibian around 0.882. Now, so basically the, these differences in the funding system that then the funding make um, or, or lead to the fact that um, global science agendas are actually set by very few um, science systems. And, um, and that also means that if we, in, within the development context or development research context, if we are interested in um, jointly with uh, partners um, from Africa, Asia, uh, develop innovations or approaches that would make sense locally in their societal contexts. But because of the funding imbalances, the agendas are largely set from basically outside the context where they are supposed to be applied in. That, of course, creates um, a situation where it's very likely that in the end the research does not fit the context that it's supposed to 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 facilitate change in. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And if we 
And these are just the numbers of, of sort of GDP differences and differences in the financing. But of course, the differences in the financing also then communicate other differences, no? um, differences in the degree of disciplinary organization in which themes, research themes are valued to which degree in a particular um, nationally defined science system or to what degree basic research is valued just as much as applied research etc and it the le the lesser self financed the system is the more likely or the the higher generally the dependence of of researchers within that system of international funds um, so the embedding into or the financing of um, the research then comes through the international donor community and um, that is usually very applied oriented and there, of course, we then usually can observe a tendency that the agenda for these research processes and research projects are set basically from outside or, or yes, in dialogue with, with another, but um, are no longer just by the local community and uh, the local science system. And that creates past dependencies over centuries. It, we know if you look at the European or the North American science system, we know that since their development sort of from Enlightenment period onwards, they have acted as immense engines of linear growth and of development in the good and in the bad. No? They have uh, led to substantial economic growth, but with this they have also brought us to to the planetary boundaries or in, in, into the vicinity of the planetary boundaries. So it means we need to rethink these science systems that they can contribute and act as engines of circular wealth creation. But that will only be possible, in, in my view, if we do that as um, on a global level. Yeah, Because many of the universal challenges that we are now facing, climate change, natural resource degradation, demographic change, globalization versus regionalization processes, they are all universal challenges that we won't be able to solve by or through just a um, few science systems, but um, only in close interaction between trans-regionally trans quite differently located science systems. Mm -hmm. That always can bring in then the local particular context, regional context, but also cultural, political contexts that mm -hmm. are important in order to assure that the research that takes place can actually then fit these contexts and make a difference in these contexts. You mentioned there that science is to some extent intricately coupled with development politics and the engine of, of driving development, particularly places like the United States historically. Do you do you get the sense that they are pushing a joint path forward? That historically they've pushed a joint path forward, or and I would say now it seems that because it, I tend to get the understanding that having a more knowledge sociological view is a little bit more critical than a lot of other perspectives within development uh, research, within sustainable development research, and that's kind of looping back then now to rethink a little bit about the historical development practices which have taken place well i i mean there has always been i would not argue that the science systems that exist in europe and north america pursued only one path of development no? but there was always a particular a sort of a certain degree of fight you could say mm. of um basically different imaginaries of future and how they were supposed to be pursued in in these systems no? and and in many ways you 
in many ways some of these these different takes on on how to pursue uh, futures also was then translated into political conflicts into political ideology you know, if you think of the Cold War, for instance. Um, but uh, nevertheless, if we now look back, uh, we see that these these science systems, especially in these two on these two continents, very much drove um, economic growth. Also within uh, within the Russian and the Chinese science system, we can observe observe exactly that role. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that what science does is that it sort of enables us to step back from the nitty-gritties of everyday life and the nitty-gritties of, 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 of implementing immediately and reflect on those and then think them through in a structured manner and, of course, um, then also develop yeah, technological advancements that, that push societal progress forward. And this sort of reflection capacity of Science system is, seems to be crucial for for societal development at at a large. No? So it's about mm. skill development and not only skill development on the level of uh, the human actor, basically, but also then skill development in terms of building infrastructures and technological infrastructures that enable enable sort of de- de- developmental jumps. One could say, you know, if you if you think of, for instance, the flying goose pattern in, in East Asia as as one developmental model, yeah, to develop in the industries sort of in quite a in quite a, um, a s- staged approach. But yeah, whether we Part of your question also was um, whether that relationship between science and and economic growth is changing now, if I understand you correctly. No? The link between economic growth, I think, is interesting, but also what knowledge is put forth, where does it come from, who is making it and why, as sustainable solutions for, for example, places outside of North America and outside of Europe. And even that reflexive capacity within North America and within Europe as well. Who is putting forth what sustainability is? This link between what we do going forward in development politics and the link with science there. Mm. Well, I think again, yeah, I mean, the the science system is is not one, and um, that also means that there are many different actor groups in in many ways contributing to the sustainable development discourse, for instance. And um, if we if we now yeah look particularly at the role of of science. For development, um, then of course we also have to see that it's not just a university-based or research institute-based science that is very much relevant to something like the Agenda 2030, but the UN itself and many UN organizations themselves acting as um, uh, knowledge actors. Yeah? Um, and also now in the current crisis, for instance, we observed how the World Health Organization um, acted as an important knowledge actor. Um, but many other organizations within the UN system did as well. And just now, for instance, the United Nations even put out a roadmap um, to research, yeah, a UN research roadmap for COVID-19 recovery. So not only basically assuring that um, many of the UN organizations themselves act as important knowledge actors and, and providers, um, but also suggesting, so to say, research approaches and agenda, one could say, um, for um, for the international research uh, community in the field. So um, 
looking looking forward and um, trying to understand that interface between um, science and development policy i think it's it's um, it's relevant to to on the one side acknowledge the multilateral level here as an important player you know? and on the other side yeah acknowledge that the this the nationally defined or or nationally organized i should better say science systems in many receiving donor receiving aid receiving countries have to be strengthened and that this is it is crucial and they they cannot be strengthened from outside only but that is really an important task for national governments and uh, regional um, organizations to to contribute to the scientific and reflective capacities of societies locally themselves and contribute to capacity development on the individual and organizational and societal level in order to also create and con continuously contribute to the ability of world society to come together on the multi on, on a multilateral level and negotiate future yeah. if you think of the agenda 2030 that is a clear example of where the world society comes together and has negotiated has come together in order to define an agenda for how we envision as as a world society a potential future in 2030 and how we want to reach that sustainable future mm. Mm. Uh, and and of course it's also defined in 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 a way that it leaves a lot of space for many different different shapes of that sustainable future but the clear message is we want to have a future on that planet and we want to have a peaceful future that meets um, human rights and is basically a value based based on values that are that take social and ecological and economic aspects into consideration and it's a joint future no? and that's important and we, we need to we need to basically emphasize and, and stress that ability to to come together as as world society to to negotiate but then also find ways of carrying the negotiated um, agendas back into their into the societal contexts and here the national science systems are crucial no? in translating an internationally negotiated agenda into local context and generating support and also basically shaping the science to policy, science to society interfaces that can mobilize for implementation. Mm -hmm. I mean, Agenda 2030, we can... Is, 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 is nothing if it remains to be a globally negotiated agenda, but that does not manage to mobilize action on the local level. And here, the research systems also play an important role. Yeah. I hear that term quite often and that we need to either bridge this gap between science and society, or there's a bunch of different words that you hear, which all, I think, surround a lot of what you just explained. But what I'm interested in is, how does it work in practice? And if you have any thoughts or experience on some of the challenges with scientists becoming the knowledge brokers, and I, I've seen some work which is, is looking at how much are we shifting from knowledge creation to knowledge brokering, and how much of that is part of the everyday academic trained scientist's role. For me, that's this is a this is a kind of uncharted space, especially particularly if you think of the path dependencies which come through in 
the training of academics up through the academic institutions that we've had have been established for the last decades. And I think that's a real challenge, especially for a lot of young and early career researchers who that vision might be coming um, and they're trying to push those types of transformative agendas, if you want to call them that, in their PhD and early career postdoc work. But the kind of the training and the practical skills and the kind of general system knowledge to support that is, I would say, is not quite there yet. I mean, um, let me try to address that question one on from the level of basically um, boards and commissions that take on such a, you, you mentioned brokering, I would say, yeah, the role of offering policy advice no, and offering mm -hmm. expertise um, that can then inform policy making processes or decision making processes. And here, I'm thinking, for instance, of the Sustainable Development Solutions Net Network, Germany, which I'm the co-spokesperson together with Gesine Schwan. And what we do is we bring expertise, we bring researchers together with um, representatives from the executive, so from ministries, partly also from the legislative, but mainly from the executive, in order to discuss particular topics, for instance, One aspect that stood at the foreground in the past months is the German sustainability strategy in order to try and inform the further shaping of the German sustainability strategy based on the research done in the different institutes that are being represented by, by the researchers that come in. I find it important here um, to always remind ourselves of the fact that we can, we can offer an insight into the status quo discussed in research and can offer an overview as well as then also deep case analyses, for instance. We can also offer orientation knowledge no? um, and basically uh, make recommendations on, for instance, which, which transformational fields to focus on, um, energy versus nutrition, transport versus education, no? for instance as well as which kind of uh, levers, leverage points are particularly relevant, what kind of financial instruments, for instance, what kind of governance instruments. But of course, the decision is not ours. You know? We mm. offer the scientific advice, but the decision lies with the decision makers. At the same time, we also have to um, take into account that timing here is very crucial, you know? and that advice and scientific-based recommendations will be ignored if they come at the wrong point in time. Yeah? So one has to monitor um, which political discussions take place and offer um, advice and offer also dialogue platforms at the right moment in time. So we are talking a lot of network building and it's more than network building. It's actually relationship, the building of relationships across this science policy making interface or divide. Yeah, that's maybe one one aspect here um, to to take into account out of the perspective of these boards, commissions, no, advisory bodies within of of which the German government, for instance, has has quite a number. Mm. I would say something very similar if I think 
about the activities of the WBGU, for instance, that I, I was recently appointed into. The, the WBGU is the Scientific Advisory Council on Environmental Change Questions to the German government. But I think part of your question also was addressing the challenge that exist within the science system itself for early career researchers that are interested in inter- and transdisciplinary research. No? So there we have an incentive mechanism that is gearing early career researchers towards, first of all, doing basically empirically based or theory-based research and um, prove themselves within a publishing environment um, that is recognized by the scientific community, but not by the policy-making community. Mm -hmm. um, and that means that um, the luxury, one could say, of engaging into um, the science-to-policy interface is indeed that. Uh, it's a luxury that um, is sort of preserved to those that are already on permanent positions, that are on, on permanent professorships or director positions, and who engage into offering policy advice um, based on not only their own research, but la usually even based on the research of whole research institutes. No? So that generates sort of um, a large amount of different of, of 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 research of a research base to put it that way and that means that there we have we have a situation where people like myself who have proven themselves in in the academic community in the scientific community at some stage in their career suddenly move into the field of scientifically based policy advice and have to actually learn a new language they have to learn that new logics, you know, the, the ministerial logics and the logics of of negotiation rounds in particular temporal cycles are suddenly the logics into which the scientifically based recommendations have to fit time-wise but also form-wise. And that yeah, that's that's a challenge. I'm enjoying the challenge, but of course for the for the for the interface between science and policy making it means that that we're not training early on people who can speak um several languages. But that comes later in, in the career stages, I guess. Maybe also uh, well, it's getting too long maybe, but um also to briefly say something about the problems how nationally oriented some of the advices. No? So if you think of development policy, development cooperation, for instance, I would like us to be able to base our advice substantially more on collaborative research projects with partners and with research partners in our partner countries. And that is often not possible because our science, again, our science donor Our science funding situation basically prevents it. No? So we mm. receive our our financing through largely German and European donors. Some of them also allow to a little a small degree the financing of the research conducted by our partners in different parts of Africa, Asia, South America. But most of our research and science donors within the German and European context only allow for that budgeting for the international partners to a very limited degree. So if we don't have a situation where the science um, systems in Asia, Africa also bring in their own financing from their side, 
we end up basically with a very imbalanced situation in the research projects and we are lacking partners often also and and that means that our policy advice is largely yeah german or european bias one could say and that's that's problematic mm. yeah, so i'm i'm pleading for the plea here is for rethinking international partnership in research and at the interface of research and development i see your background and the perspective that you take is rather disciplinary rooted but i also see you as someone who's one of the most strong advocates for interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary research, if you would use those terms yourself, that I know. And how do you see the value in having a disciplinary rooted, uh, rooted training and disciplinary rooted perspective, but then also be so much in favor of trying to bridge that and trying to move towards an interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary perspective? Well, I used to, in, in proposals, I used to work with the so-called T approach. <laughs> and that, of course, sounds a little silly, but I, what, what, what it stands for and I, what I actually think is, is very valuable, continues to be very valuable, is that it argues for a strong and deep sort of uh, grounding in methods and theory and that grounding often is still of a disciplinary nature simply because of the structure of our our faculties and our um, teaching curricula. It doesn't have to be, but there has to be, in my view, a very substantial grounding within um, methods and, and uh, conceptual debate and also in a solid understanding of basically the value of empiricism. No, that um, we move from empirical situations up towards abstractions. But then within that, within that sort of grounding, once, once we have that, that, that's important because it, it defines us as, as research in our research identities, but it also limits us and confines us in many ways. And once we reach sort of the doctoral and then postdoctoral level, I think it's it's all about branching out. You know, that's sort of the, the the horizontal part of the T. Branching mm. out and try to learn from our colleagues, but also um, not only learn from our colleagues, but learn together with colleagues from other disciplines how to to move beyond our disciplinary confinements and and think through our methodological and conceptual foundations out of the perspective of other methodological and conceptual foundations. And I think for that, it's very, very useful to actually jointly go to the field. You know? So, for instance, tag along when the soil scientist does takes her samples or his samples and uh, join in when a research crew of or a group of marine scientists goes on their cruises you know, and try to understand how that, how these different research objects and subjects that we try to understand interact, smell, if I think of now soil, soil sciences or, or, yeah, feel and how, how we can basically get closer to understanding them by using all our senses, not just the senses of, of the written and of, of hearing and, and the written word. I want to frame it again back up to your call for cooperative science, but I'm interested in at least the way that I've thought about interdisciplinarity is that a lot of it comes down to interpersonal type of character and openness and willingness uh, between individuals to to really invest the time because it is 
well, one way of framing it is that it really is this collective action problem. Someone has to invest in it. It's not necessarily the most efficient thing to do to invest in understanding some other person's uh, way of knowing, especially because you can go through an entire training, which takes the whole career to get up to perhaps that other person's level of understanding. But do you think that those challenges which exist at a, an individual, at a project, at an inter-working group level are some of the challenges which also manifest at these higher levels uh, that make some of the science cooperation difficult and developing strategies for science cooperation going forward? Well, on an, on an abstract level, I would say it's always about structure and agency. Yeah? So what I mean is, um, I mean, within inter- and transdisciplinarity, you've got these discussions on, you know, is it... Is it in the end the individual that makes or what you've just mentioned, you know, the individual character and personality that either makes the interdisciplinary exchange possible or not? Or is it the system? And with this, I mean the incentive mechanisms within which we operate that and also the, for instance, the structure, how we structure a project, the, the products that we put at the center of the project, the deliverables that we've defined, are they joint deliverables or are they um, disciplinarily um, fragmented, one could say, no, um, that, and, and, and that makes basically or that creates an encouragement and, and, uh, and a setting within, within which uh, inter- and transdisciplinary exchange becomes possible. And it's both, of course. Yeah? Um, I mean, I realize that you have in the, within that debate, you have those who say, no, it's it's all structure, it's all system, you need to get the system right, and then agency follows, and those who put the emphasis on, on the agency, I would say it's definitely both. We uh, we we can do and we have to do um, if we if we want if, if if the research question is an interdisciplinary research question and if the aim is to create research that informs particularly particular real life situations, then for instance, no land and water governance in a particular setting or the management of of coastal coastal area no, in in island island southeast asia for instance then these these are by nature interdisciplinary and need the expertise from dis- different disciplines and we should even go beyond that yeah, and say it's not just an interdisciplinary endeavor if you want to rethink a management plan of a coastal area in, in island southeast asia but it's a transdisciplinary endeavor so we need to have the local decision makers and local practitioners on board. And then we have to structure the project in a way that there is value placed on joint deliverables products that can only be developed across the disciplinary and science to practitioner, science to policy boundaries, so to say. But of course, again, uh, the setting does not end with the project setting, no? but within the project and how we design a project that's important, it's relevant, how do we encourage the interaction, how do we create regular meeting platforms, how do we enable that people can go jointly into the field, no? how do we create an incentive mechanism that not only the academic journal articles count, but that also the policy paper counts or the policy event where an interaction with policymakers takes place counts and is valued and is appreciated. But of course, also beyond the project, we have to make sure that then 
within our faculties, for instance, we develop an understanding that uh, an, an interdisciplinary PhD does not need to meet the criteria of several faculties for a PhD, mm. but basically is then also valued in its interdisciplinary format no? and that the the further development of for instance methodology etc is is uh, beyond disciplinary um, boundaries is seen as, as something valuable so we need a dialogue within our faculties and within our disciplinary communities or, or subject area communities for the value of inter and transdisciplinary knowledge production. And again, you know, we need a funding structure that allows that and that aims and demands uh, this um, inter and transdisciplinary exchange. Yeah. I'm interested in how you see the role of transdisciplinarity insofar as it hovers around interdisciplinarity. I often see it framed, and I've also done this in my own writing, that People will say, for example, we take an inter and transdisciplinary approach. And I've been thinking a lot more about if is that really a stepwise or a linear progression, or are there more fundamental characteristics which differentiate interdisciplinarity, which is, as you were mentioning there, more about understanding what the other disciplines view as objects of study, how they go about doing that as a scientific process, whereas transdisciplinarity, as we talked about before, can be seen as this role between knowledge creation versus knowledge brokering, this integration with society, which might require fundamentally different skill set and approach. I wonder how you view that. Where, where do you see transdisciplinarity in relation to or the other disciplinarity terms out there, particularly interdisciplinarity? Yeah, I mean, uh, while I've now just employed the interdisciplinarity and transdisciplinarity terminology, I actually probably should say that I think an even more capturing way of putting it is to distinguish on the one side we have interdisciplinary knowledge, pro disciplinary and interdisciplinary knowledge production. That's knowledge production within the sciences. And then we have something that we can call transdisciplinary, but I think the term transformative research actually captures it even better because there's not only the going beyond the confinement of the science system and bringing in practitioners, policymakers, but it's also fundamentally a different type of research. And it has the immediate um, or the, the underlying current is that it is normative research that wants to change wants to inform change processes, you no know, societal change processes. And that means I mean also, interdisciplinary research sometimes formulates that aim, but transformative research means that you, you do the research jointly with practitioners and that the mode of research and how it is done is very different. A lot more of transformative research takes place in, in substantial dialogue forms or in a substantial sort of series of engaging into an, an continuous exchange around the subject matter but with with practitioners and scientists involved so it takes place also a lot more in networks in order to then generate the support infrastructures for for implementation but also for for shaping a joint understanding um, often no a, a meta narrative for instance of sustainability one could say as an example yeah but then also at the same time through through jointly developing that um, joint understanding of what sustainability could be, should be, how it can be achieved. Also already um, 
preparing basically or mobilizing the support for for taking it further for taking the narrative then further into many other societal contexts so it's 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 a fundamentally different um, approach to doing research and um, and I think that needs to be acknowledged a lot more and probably also understood a lot more and and one challenge there of course is also how to how to layer the different types or how to puzzle one could say maybe the different pieces of uh, of different types of knowledge production together what i mean is also within a transformative science approach you will have components where you need to basically do lab work yeah, and where you need to take a th three three year time slot um, for a longer term analysis of subparts no mm -hmm. so um in in a comprehensive transformative research approach you would basically sort of have um in in my mind yeah you would have a number of interdisciplinary research projects at the same taking place at the same time as well as the larger more comprehensive transformative research project and it sort of fits together yeah and in in many ways you could ask whether the project project based organization of our science system by default already encourages this type of sort of in a decentralized manner encourages this overlaying of different interdisciplinary and then transformative research approaches but of course that also means that we have a lot of additional costs no that um or missing pieces that are simply falling through the coordination cracks. Yeah. This has been wonderful. I think we could talk for many more hours about these things and perhaps another day we could we could do a second round. Is there anything you wanted to bring up or to share before we wrap up? No, I mean what is important to me is this this is this point that we need to rethink international partnerships and in research and that means that we need to rethink the international system of financing research and financing research and education and we can start within the german context that is important and within the european context but we also need a substantial lobbying for and a, a change of perception of research and and the value of research and education in in many partner countries and in many countries also in africa and asia and i i, I I hope that we can engage here into fruitful conversations that um, lead to a renewed value being placed on the, the sort of developmental potential, societally development, I mean, developmental potential for societies of research and education in Africa, Asia, South America and Europe. Thanks for tuning in. If you are new to the podcast, feel free to explore our previous episodes on our website, www.incommonpodcast.org. They can also be found on just about any other podcast player. If you're on Twitter, you can connect with us there, where we share updates, new episodes, and blog posts associated with the podcast. Thanks again. 